Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and play styles of all of the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't work, what led to better games, as well as what didn't but kind of did, but then didn't but then did again. And we're going to talk about it all. In this episode, we are discussing, once again, the Dungeon Master's Guide from First Edition Dungeons & Dragons. And the reason we are doing this is because this is 12 Days of Edition Wars, day number two. And I am here with my favorite co-host, Mr. Brandis Stoddard. How are you, sir? I am I'm pleased to be the other turtle dove today. <laughs> That's right. Oh, the 12 days. I keep forgetting. Yeah, right. You know, that partridge in a pear tree was really fun to have all last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or yesterday, because we should well, we should persuade yeah, our listeners yeah. that, no? Then I could go for that? Well, I, I had to house it for a week before I gave it to you as the gift for the first day of Christmas. You know? Right. Well, sure. Because you are my true love. Oh, <laughs> It's going a little far, I feel, but all right. <laughs> but but I'm glad you didn't give me, you know, a partridge that wasn't housebroken. That would be rude. Yeah, could be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, uh, well, never mind. <laughs> so I believe last time we left off right around page eighty something or so, and I think the next major topic that we are going to discuss is. The adjustment and division of experience points. Yep, we are we are skating right past some stuff we don't want to talk about because <laughs> it's our show, and we're back That's to experience right. points, a topic we've actually discussed before right. on this show. We have um, several times. Yep, and I mean, man, this is this is just a reminder because I've been in conversations about it lately that. Experience points have always been super subjective, just in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, like the amount of gold that literally gets handed out is subjective, because either the GM places it, or the GM decides if the PCs have worked hard enough to find it. Right mm-hmm. in in those old school dungeon crawls that were Gary's style. Right, right. Uh, you know there there was a lot of. Uh, well, there might be a bag of gold under that loose flagstone or whatever. Well, does the GM give you a hint to notice it? That's subjective. Well, here, a lot of the subjectivity is, have you played your class and alignment well enough? And mm-hmm. that gives you a letter rating that gets into how long it's going to take you to train, how much it's going to cost you, and so on. Yeah, and... um it's really funny because I was just actually having this conversation yesterday about the um, uh, the idea of how to give experience, and you know, in some of the quote this person's words, older systems that use gold and all that, um, and ultimately the the end of the conversation was uh, two or three of of the people in the conversation basically saying, "Eh, you just got to eyeball it and do what you think is right." And that's ultimately how it's always been. Right. Despite the rules and despite what's codified, um, you know, but, but never has it been so codified as the uh, part on page 86 with the ESFP ratings, which I know you love. <laughs> oh, oh, ooh. We, are, we are throwing that word around today. That is, <laughs> heckin' yeah. yikes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a mess, 
and it drives me nuts. Um, I, I don't think there's a lot of like, useful inspiration to take forward here for literally anything up to and including first edition D and D, AD and D. Um, but, uh, I mean, I do think that it can, it's possible for, uh, a training montage as part of leveling up that takes place over the course of anywhere from uh, a week to two months of in-game time. It's possible for that to be cool, right? It's possible mm-hmm. for that to both seed new storylines and provide payoff for choices the players made, right? right. That could all happen. Like, you could fold in uh, encounters with NPCs and recognition for heroics and all this kind of stuff. But having said that, running uh, one montage per player for a table of uh, three to seven players is stressful. And so I don't blame people not doing it. So I don't have I don't have a ton more to offer you on that. I think that the next section of the campaign, where we get back to some uh, Gygaxis essayist, uh, mm-hmm. that, that's some interesting stuff, right? That that's actual guidance. That is like him trying to like pass down his philosophy to people who are reading this for maybe the first time. Um, mm. he's he, Here's where he's actually trying not to assume too much that you've played uh, you know, original D&D in any of its versions, right? Uh, uh, not not past or future. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Uh, and and then, though, it is, it is quickly followed by the uh, social class and rank section. Um, yep which assumes a highly feudal European setting ethos. Yeah. And certainly that's what they were publishing at the time. I mean, absolutely. No, oh, no yeah. question. I mean, um, it's, it's Greyhawk, right? Yep. Uh, in, in, in a lot of ways anyway. Uh, I mean, pretty explicitly he name checks Greyhawk at the bottom of page 88. Oh, sure. But I, I just mean in terms of what they were producing, it, it's Greyhawk. Um, and, it was like that for a long time, but eventually uh, it moved a, a little bit away from that sort of, it became a little bit different, I guess I should say. Yep. And uh, we have a, a really quite uh, classic, if no better as a result of being classic uh, mm-hmm. defense of uh, masculine as neutral for mm-hmm. pronouns. Yeah. That's, like that, my friends, is going to survive quite well all the way into uh, second at least. I don't remember what third does, but second for sure. I remember the sidebar explaining that uh, he, him pronouns are what they're going to use for beings of indeterminate gender. Yeah. I think in third edition, don't they try to um, alternate? I think they do. Uh They'll do he for one iconic NPC and or PC class, right? And then the next one has she. Um, and even in the different chapters, they'll they'll alternate calling the DM a he in one chapter and then a she in another. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think they get a little bit better about that. And you know that really highlights how in uh, in fifth edition things are in second person absolutely as much as they can manage. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
because true gender neutrality is you, which, hey, that's smart. But the thing is, like, I mean, this this section, as as much as I, and I think we've talked about this before, but I love this section, but it is it is highly Gygaxian. Oh, yeah. And, um, and, and the man had such an influence on the game uh, for so long. And, um, you know, y- it just, it's, it seeps out of his writing, you know, and, and I'm saying that in, in neutrally, I'm not saying it's good or bad. Uh, you know, it's nothing in here shocks me because of course I grew up with this. Sure. Uh, of course. But, um, I, but the writing is very different. And so for someone who has not experienced the first edition dungeon master's guide in terms of reading it and actually really analyzing it for what it's trying to say about the game and the world and the setting. Um, it's eye opening in some places. Sure. Uh, and, and, yeah. and this is one of them, this social rank uh, section and, and all that. Um, and then of course that hops right over to the duties, excises, fees, tariffs, taxes, tithes, and tolls. <laughs> Which which we talked about in the uh, the economy mm-hmm. episodes, yeah. and like it's it's just such bureaucracy punk. Oh like, yeah, sure. Just yeah, totally mm, I sure did give you some money, and now I regret mm-hmm. that because you have it. Yeah. I'm thinking no. Yeah, and and the thing and the thing is, like as the DM, that was his way. That <laughs> oh was, yeah, clearly that was how he did it. And you know, uh, if he if he was too generous one session and and realized it because the the players were using the goodies that they got, whether it's gold or something else, uh, in the next couple of sessions, and he realizes, oh crap, those are really powerful. I got to do something to take those away. Well, here it is. Uh, yeah. Roll up to town, and the town is having a, a a disaster. They're trying to collect tolls for, so they take ninety percent of everything that you have. <laughs> you know, sure. Uh, that was that was how it was. Uh, and yeah. in some ways, the funny part about that is, in some ways, that actually defines a setting so much. Yep. That it made so many slight and great inconsistencies that it actually made Greyhawk very fantastical, despite its setting as a feudal European, you know, uh, setting with knights and castles and all that. Sure. Um, so that, that sort of led to the, you know, added to the fantastical aspect, which is kind of weird to say it that way, but it for sure did, at least in games I played in, it for sure did. Um, because ultimately, in that type of setting, you're at the whim of the people in power. Yep. And if you're at the whim of people in power and they decide that when you're walking up to the gates, you look like you have a lot of money, they can decide to tax you. And that's just how it is. Yep. Yep, yep. So, um, but yeah, so we can skip a lot of that section and not really say much more because we did talk about it in the extensive economics episodes that we yeah, like the, the the whole thing about like uh, squeezing taxes out of players makes me think of when we were running Dust to Dust LARP. Um, we actually got players enthusiastically supporting uh, tax season mm-hmm. because we explained in excruciating detail in the culture packet how that whole flow of tax revenue worked, and the whole point was to gather revenue in the form of silver so that the local lord's sword could be silvered so they could fight werewolves and shades. 
<laughs> and so nice. the PCs were like, yes, we are into this. We will pay <laughs> gladly. It's cool. Right. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> and That's it was awesome. great. <laughs> um, and, and because there were, there were PC lords, so like they weren't seeing no collective benefit out of it. It was more sort of a, a fund drive for something they kind of wanted to do anyway. Yeah. Right? And, and so that wound up really nice. Yeah, that's um, cool. I like it. Uh, hard to do in most D&D games, but maybe someone will have a cool idea that came from that. Um, but yeah, like it, it continues with a bunch of sort of essays on placing treasure. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's Which it's was, very dense know, text. Because, because the game was reliant on treasure as part of your experience, um, it, it required a lot of words. Because oh, yeah. as we said, what it comes down to is do what you feel is the best way. Well, depending on who you are, you have different feelings. And uh, this is Gygax telling you what he thinks about it. So, Yep. And, I mean, it continues into territory development by player characters. Um, and then um, that involves some, some random roles that are kind of interesting. Uh, though it has to be said that... Uh, Frank Menser is going to cover a lot of the same territory in Beck Me, and mm-hmm. he's going to make it a lot more interesting than this, because some of those supplements stand up really well today, kind of almost perversely. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But he had a way of getting straight to what he meant to say. Right, and, and let's let's talk about that, that was kind of nice. for a second. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that the reason for that partly is it was meant to teach you how to play the game Yeah, in a lot of ways. Whereas this book right here that we're talking about is not really meant to teach you how to play the game. It's meant to give you advice and certain rules that you can use if you don't know anything about a particular topic and so therefore can't make up the rule yourself. It's not really meant to teach you to play the game. Whereas Beckme was designed, at least the red box and the blue, were designed to teach you how to play. And by the time you got to the teal box with the, with the wars and the, stru- the strongholds and structures, um, it was teaching you a different way to play. So it was still focused on trying to teach you. Yeah. And nothing in this book is about, well, I don't want to say nothing. Most of the things in this particular book that we're talking about right now are not really set up to teach you anything. Right. It, it's more trained to inspire than teach in a lot of ways. Right. I think. Yeah. Um, but like, I, I think that a, a totally normal reader could look at uh, two facing pages of dense text in long paragraphs mm-hmm. and kind of have their eyes glaze over and get, if I find it a bit hard to just extract the useful gameable stuff from that. I think that's. Mm-hmm. I think it's a reasonable place to be as a as a reader, and I kind of want to skip right over the peasants, serfs, and slaves section. It's gross. Yep. Because it just assumes PCs in a in a pro slavery position, which right. oh no, and you know, I fair to point out that we are not presumably talking about chattel slavery as practiced in the American South. Still mm-hmm. gross. Mm-hmm. Still, still, still a terrible look, and right. just no. Um, so, scooting right along, we have a sample dungeon and its first three rooms, and then a um, 
another essay regarding, you know, what to do with maps and yep. how to how to adjudicate some of these things. So uh, uh, sort of the opposite of what I was saying a minute ago, which was none of this book was meant to teach you how to play. Well, and now here we have a page and a half where it's kind of teaching you how to play. Um, I, I still maintain that there are a lot of assumptions uh, that are being made uh, that make it so that, um, yeah, so that, so that this isn't, I'm not sure it's as instructive as, uh, you know, it could be, you know. Yeah. I, I know that uh, when I got started in d and I was trying to teach myself how to run this thing, and I was playing second edition. It didn't teach me how to manage a dungeon and guide the players through it and describe things mm-hmm. for them. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll cover this again when we get to the second edition DMG, but this is a real effort, if maybe not a sufficient one, to teach the DM how to present a dungeon in their narration. And I, I just don't know that there's any way to put that on a page in a way that is going to get the job done. Not even, uh, you know, almost three pages of, uh, of dialogue, right? Of, mm-hmm. of the screenplay. It's a screenplay, uh, just a bad one. Um, <laughs> I, 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 like I don't know that there is any way to do that until you get to the era of the actual play, right? I think that a recorded actual play, whether we're talking streaming or uh, video on demand or podcast or whatever, that is actually able to teach the thing by helping you like see what the DM is doing and hear what they're saying in a natural flow. Like, I just don't know if there's any script that you could write that would help with that. Uh, because at least to me as a reader, this script helps me describe that one dungeon, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't generalize very well because I don't know all of the other thoughts that the, the GM is having as we go through this of, well, here'd be a cool thing to do. Here would be uh, like, okay, I need to count down until a thing happens because it's part of the plot of the dungeon, right? It's just as surprising in the script because it's sort of dumped down. Whereas in an actual play, like, and maybe it's because I'm a a more mature listener now than I was at 12. Fine. That's, that's a fair cop, but it seems much more natural to, to me to, like be able to get inside the DM's head and understand what they're trying to do with the things that are happening in the narration. I mean, I, I guess for me and kind of you're, you're kind of describing what I meant. You're, you're, you're speaking much more eloquently and doing a much better job than, than what I said. That's exactly what I mean when I say it makes a lot of assumptions. Yeah. Doesn't really teach you how to play. Um, on the other hand, though, I mean, I, I feel like I feel like in this episode, I'm really bashing this book, and I don't mean to, because on the other hand, this did give you, as you said, this was before the time of actual play recordings or videos. This does give you an idea of, okay, well, if, if that how it's really supposed to flow, if that's how it's really supposed to flow, okay, I can try to make that happen, right? Um, but it doesn't give you a heck of a lot of uh, help if you... 
if you're not able to, if you don't really understand what's going on already. And, and you know, to continue my line from uh, the episode prior, it's yesterday, folks. I promise it's yesterday. Um, <laughs> uh, the the sense of like there's a threshold you need to cross. There's a moment of initiation into I can DM now is really set up by this book to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I submit that we have spent the uh, 41 years since its release uh, taking a sledgehammer to that idea. And we haven't gotten very far. It just, if you listen to conversations online about how nervous people are about their first time DMing, um, well, we still have a lot more work to do to detonate that idea. Yeah. No, I, I'm in full agreement there. I'm in full agreement. Um, and this is where, this is where in some ways actual plays help a great deal. And in some ways they don't help at all. Um, I, I mean, certainly there's the, the famous Mercer effect. Right. And that's what, that's where I was going. Yeah. Was, you know, if you're a new DM and you look at a critical role um, show and you think to yourself, oh man, this is brilliant. I love it. It's great. Probably if you have any sort of lack of confidence or or if you have imposter syndrome at all about your own abilities, then your very next thought is probably I could never do that. Yeah. I I, I can't. I'm it's not I'm not capable of that. I I couldn't run it that well. I don't have a group that knows each other as well as these people do. I could never deal with all the technical aspects and still run a smooth game. Like I, you know, look, Matt Mercer and that whole group, they're amazing. They are amazing. They still make mistakes. They make mistakes, but they're what, what I was going to say was they're amazing. And also they have worked in the entertainment industry in voiceovers and production and acting and, and all of those things for the majority of most of their careers, I know sometimes they have people on there that aren't. Um, and so there's a certain familiarity that they have already walking into the room, even if they don't do everything perfect and, and make mistakes. The thing is, if you're a new DM and you're watching it, you don't notice the mistakes. Yeah. Right. You don't know they're making mistakes. Well, like what I'm definitely noticing, sorry, folks, we're doing a critical role tangent. Um, <laughs> Uh, what I'm definitely noticing lately is uh, the the different kinds of creative energy that the players are bringing to the table with their personal stories. Um, like, I guess I'm going through a little bit of a crisis of confidence in my own character creation when I'm on the pl- on the PC side. Right, I've I've been struggling with that lately, and like, feeling like I'm actually getting into the character's head and creating someone who's interesting at all. Um, and, you know, they're, they're bringing um, stories with, with layers. With, they have characters who are prepared to experience uh, dramatic arcs. Uh, like, it, none of them seem to be setting out to insist that they're an iconic hero whose ethos doesn't need to change. And that that clearly to me comes from their acting background and their mm-hmm. experience with improvisation. Um, like they know how to imagine characters into existence very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that's great. 
I think that um, obviously Matt is doing an enormous amount of, of work in heavy lifting, but from my perspective, I understand the work that uh, that Mercer is doing much better than I understand the work that the players are doing. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I feel like I, 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 I kind of, I, I understand that a little bit, what you're saying. Um, I'm not sure I've, I've ever thought of it in those specific terms. Uh, you know, I, cause, cause here's the thing, right? So, um, it's, it's possible to have a good story where a character doesn't actually change very much. That doesn't make it great literature, right? Well, like Batman doesn't change in Batman stories uh, outside of the Nolan verse, basically. But I, I I just mean in terms of, so, so just any book that you pick up, right? Like, sometimes what makes a great book is the character goes on this journey and the journey's fantastic no matter what it is I, i'm not even talking fantasy i'm just saying like any any story right the journey's fantastic and by the end of the story the character has learned something fundamental either about themselves or the world or someone they love or someone, something that's important to them and it makes them change. Right. Sure. Sure. Um, and that ends up being a very satisfying type of situation. And, and so those stories often become beloved stories. On the other hand, there are plenty of stories that I love reading over and over again, where the main character really does not change. There is really no character development arc. Oh, for sure. And, and that's, that's the iconic character. That's uh, very, very common in procedurals. Right. Uh, Sherlock Holmes does not learn from his mistakes. <laughs> See, I, I was thinking Angela Lansbury. <laughs> like, right? it, so, it, it's, it's detective stories, for sure. Like, yeah, detective yeah. stories and cop stories. Like, <laughs> that's right. That's... Yeah. They're not there to change. They're there to reestablish order. But also there uh, – so uh, I, what I'm thinking of is uh, Ready Player One. Okay. Okay. Love this. I love the book. Okay. Apparently the author is not that great, but uh, I love the book, partly because I grew up in the exact time that he's writing about in that book. I grew up in the 80s and sure. So ev- Every yeah. every part I never saw the movie, but every part of that book is like, oh my god, oh my god! It's like I'm I'm reading my childhood, other than the you know all the electronic stuff that's around, you know surrounding the whole story idea. Sure, but that main character doesn't really change at all. Sure, throughout the story, and that's a big critique of that of that particular book, and I'm okay with that critique. My response to that critique is, yeah, okay, I don't disagree. Uh, I still enjoy the story, right? Sure. So it doesn't have to have a critical character arc, but the critical role people, they often, I can't even say always because I haven't been watching the latest show, so I can't, but they have an arc. And when those people playing those parts, playing those characters walk in at the very beginning, they know there's going to be an arc. They might not know exactly what it's going to be. They might not know exactly how it's going to come to be, but they're willing to grab onto that arc and ride the whole thing to the other side of the rainbow. And that's the part where when you say, I don't really know what they're doing, or I, I have like, 
I don't have confidence that I could walk in every day and do that. That's where I, I feel what you're saying. Yeah. Right. Cause I don't set out partly because I've been playing for so long. I don't set out at the beginning with the first level character and imagine all of the, this whole giant character arc. In fact, that's one of the, re- that's one of the reasons why I didn't, I didn't really appreciate third editions character creation process Yeah, right. because you had to look so far ahead right. and kind of see what changes were going to be made so that you could become the character you wanted to be. Well, well right. And, and prestige classes meant you had to pace out your development, right. exactly. your, your narrative development in the right way. No, I right. agree with that. And it isn't that I'm saying I want to have my, my character's development planned from day one. Mm-hmm. It's just I, I want to make sure that I've, uh, I've built the right foundation. Right? I want to, I've built a, a foundation yeah, yeah. Uh, with yeah. the character so that there are interesting directions to grow, even if I don't know what they are yet. Mm-hmm. Right, right. No, and that's kind of what I'm trying to say is that when they, when the critical role players walk into the room, they might not know exactly where it's going, but they know they're in it for the ride, and they're going to let the character arc, regardless of how, how that works. Right. Um, and I don't know that I'm any good at that as a player. Yeah. And and I don't. I'm not. I'm not saying I'm bad at it. But I DM so much, I don't play very often. And when I do play, I often find myself at a loss as to where I want the character to go because of because it's such a shift to go from player to DM to player. Um, but yeah, uh, so having said that, back to the 1E DMG, this write-up, this scripted little piece of play example also doesn't help that either. <laughs> Right. Yeah. But one thing to remember, though, is back in first edition, and this is why I said I don't I have a hard time with that sometimes because I've been playing for a long time, because in first edition, you didn't create a whole thought process of what you wanted your character to be at the beginning. Yeah, because most of your characters died at first level. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So you couldn't invest a lot of energy in, in imagining what one of, you know, you kind of created your character through play because you had to, because there was no real idea of how long they're going to be alive. And now in fifth edition, it's kind of the same. You're cre- you're, it's better when you create your character through play. The difference is when you, when you create your character at first level, you have a lot more tools with which to imagine where you might be going in fifth edition than you had in first edition. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, we're way off on a tangent. <laughs> um, I enjoy uh, critical role. I have not watched the, uh, this, this latest. Um, I just don't, I don't have the, uh, the bandwidth and the time to be able to do it. And I, and I, I would, it would be one thing I would watch for sure and not be able to do anything else while I'm watching. Well, right. I, I listened to the podcast just, I like I listened to, um, the D&D Brief podcast. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. the idea of sitting down and watching a show on a schedule. I'm dimly aware that we used to do that, but I don't remember <laughs> right. how. And we sure yeah. the hell didn't do it for uh, two to four and a half hours uh, right. in, in, in a show that started on West Coast time. Yeah, right. Get out. No. Yeah, no, no, I hear you. I hear you. Well, and that's part of the that's also part of the reason why I'm not I just don't it's not it doesn't fit into my schedule very well. Right. Um so um 
Anyway, the next section anyway. uh, is is actually super super nice <laughs> it, follow it's on. Relevant, yeah, it's relevant. Yes, it's it's non-player characters, and uh, of all the sections in here, this one is going to come fairly close to surviving into the five E DMG. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Because the five E DMG, which we know you haven't read, it's cool, um, <laughs> has uh, a a pretty in-depth section of random tables for fleshing out. NPCs, especially villains. There's uh, some really nice nested tables on um, like villainous motives and goals and so on um, for like just exploring what does the DM, what does the, the villain want? How do they go about getting it? Okay, apply that that, that fairly high level statement to your campaign. Right, and I think that's cool stuff. This is connected to that. Um, it also strikes me that uh, this could be a lot less like um, personality features and backgrounds than it is, like the, the traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws. Mm-hmm. Um, it's single word descriptions rather than a sentence of like something the character might say about themselves if they were being excessively honest. Uh, but it's the same set of ideas, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's pretty cool. It's a bit weirder when you have a D10 table and you write out all of uh, two through six as the same or whatever, right? A, a lot of a lot of things are, are <laughs> yeah. repeated because he's trying to show average, spectrums. Average, average, average. Yeah. yeah. He's, trying to, he's trying to show uh, – he's trying to do a bell curve on a single die, and that mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. doesn't work. But this is what he can do, right? <laughs> yeah, that is very true. I I, ha- I had I had forgotten about the ones that have the same thing four times in a row. Right. Yeah. The, the sanity table, the uh, possessions table. Like, it's not super descriptive, but all right, sure, whatever. Um, and then we get to the. Uh, it's funny because we get to this um, this next section with uh, hiring uh, hirelings and non-player characters and all that, um, and there's a there's a small sort of uh, paragraph uh, in here that um, is one of those is is one of those like I'm trying to kind of teach you the way. It's the special roles of the dungeon master. Yeah. Right. Um, he talks about even though you're the judge and the jury and all that, you're also engaged and from game to game, you know, you're going to be playing different roles and you're going to have to make sure that as you adjudicate the actions of these hirelings and, and, and henchmen and all that, that you're doing it in a consistent manner so that it doesn't seem subjective, right. Or, or that the, that the person has changed, right. The idea is it's the same hireling, every time so it's it's an interesting little paragraph it's a lot of text just to say be faithful to the character that you establish right right but right but but you know i mean if you don't know see that it's one of those spots where if you don't really know or understand how to be a dm or what your job is that's one of those oh oh yeah i have to play those people like they're real people yeah for sure for sure and you know that that's frankly a good lesson to starting players too, right? Try to play your character like a person and not like um, an avatar in a video game world, maybe. 
right? Um, but he gets into a fairly in-depth example with uh, Kello and Silvershield um, that's just like trying to inspire you by describing the flow of play around this character. Um, and, you know, it puts me in mind of some of the articles in uh, Dragon Magazine, I think especially the Dragon Magazine annuals that Gygax contri- contributed, um, you know, wh- when I was growing up, we're talking the, the, the 90s and uh, early 2000s before his passing. Um, in those, he was a superlatively good writer for helping to show in in a different way than this DMG ever does why all this stuff is interesting. Because uh, mm-hmm. he was mm-hmm. talking about the adventure in so much more immediate of a way. And right. I wish he'd been able to get some of that. But in fairness, uh, he was still inventing the, the whole art form in 79 when this was written. And so I can't really blame him for needing the the twenty years following right. to the su- all the subsequent years to actually internalize what he had done. Right, right. That's that's actually fair. Yeah. What's funny about this um, this this example with uh, Kello and Silvershield? This is a better example of how to play than the scripted thing three pages ago. Uh, absolutely, it is. Yeah. So that's funny. I mean, this reads like a summary of an actual play, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which yeah, it's actually helpful. Um, and now we're going to change topics again <laughs> because that's what this book do. Yeah, um, we go through with no with no foreshadowing either. God, it's just no. sort of uh, oh look, there's large text. It's a new heading. Oh, whole new section. Okay. <laughs> yep. Uh, oh, oh, all caps. I guess that's a new section. <laughs> uh, that's right. G- good luck, bro. Uh, yeah, yeah. We get monsters and organization. What? Um, sure. Mon- uh, and it amounts to uh, monsters have hierarchies, and it affects their engagement. Yeah. Sure, great. That's a very good point. You should do that. Um, that is a perfectly legit approach, and it does help bring the world alive by showing that the NPCs have relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, use of non-human troops. Mm. Yeah, okay. That's Yeah. I mean, I mean th- this is less directly helpful and more kind of uh maybe a useful procedural tool. Mhm. Mhm. Right. Right. Uh as is much of this entire book. For sure. Yeah. For sure. For sure this section is. Um we get construction and siege. And then and then there's the conducting the game. Oh, whole new section conducting the game. Yep. And then it's, you know, some rules and guidelines. Yep. Uh, handling um, troublesome players. Yep. <laughs> well, it's going to come up, but like, he gives the advice that everyone in the the Facebook 5e group, the one with uh, 460 million readers mm-hmm. or however many it is these days, <laughs> um, like the advice that you see reiterated there over and over and over mm-hmm. again of well, first try having a conversation like adults, mm-hmm. and then kick them out of the group. If that if they won't have a conversation with a like an adult with you, and modify their behavior. And the I guess the main thing I want to say about this section is that uh, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Um, a DM needs to be prepared to like 
be on the receiving end of this conversation uh, as much as a player does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, he then goes bad places with every part of it. Strong steps short of expulsion can be an extra random monster die, obviously rolled, the attack of an ethereal mummy. It, like, come on now, don't well, here, don't mess thing, around, though. because then you're turning, like, it, then, then you have players asking if every encounter is just did we do something wrong? I, Are I you know, I know, me? I know, but here's the thing, right? I, I actually think he's showing a great deal of prescience here because he knows he he knows hard fought experience you mean right and he and he he knows from from human nature that some dms will just not be able to kick a person out of the group so if they're misbehaving if they've you've talked to them like an adult and they won't change and if you if there's peer pressure and that's not working you punish the player's pc that is his that's the that's the go-to, and that's the because then you have plausible deniability. Hey, man, it's just a game. The dice did it. You know, it's I didn't mean to kill your character. I'm not pissed off at you. You know, you if you're trying to maintain a friendship and you're not good at social skills anyway, right? Or you are, but the other person isn't, right? Like there's I, a. Whole- I will gently disagree with you that Gygax knew what he was doing there. I I think I think he might have stumbled into something that has a justification, but I don't think he, I, I don't think he was in the right place with it. Well, okay. So I, I suppose, I suppose using the word prescience implies he understood. Yeah. And, and that's what I was going with. I, I mean, I'll, I'll seed the point there. Perhaps he didn't know. I don't think he was a stupid person though. He, oh, I'm not saying he's stupid. I'm not. He was, he, he was a salesman before, before, you know, he was a salesman as a career before he, you know, before Dungeons and Dragons. So, you know, he, he had some ability to read people and uh, you know, a part of me wants to think that this is because he knew that a lot of people won't be able to actually be adults at the table. Right. Well, and like what I do think he definitely saw what was both his own experience with his friends who might be kind of jerks, sure. right? That's fine. And then also watching um, – maybe by the time this book was released, maybe not. I'm not looking at their ages. Mm-hmm. But watching his friends try to do the same job, then watching his sons try to do the same job right. of of running the table. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think uh, – like I really want to believe that especially watching his sons would have really – opened his eyes to what the job was because there's some of the people he knows best in the world. And now he's seeing what he's taught them. Right. Yeah. He's actually able to see himself reflected. Uh, uh, This is, this is me waxing eloquent about fatherhood. Like folks, you get what you get on this show, but that's (laughs) like that. That's what that's me projecting Mm -hmm. like my own life. Um, with my six-year-old and my three-year-old into what it would be like if I were watching them GM a game in, in a few years. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know, man. And then, um, I mean, I, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, that's also part of the impetus for having Frank Mincer compile the basic red box. 
It's fair. You know, and um, because the thing is that the basic editions before that, the Holmes basic edition and the uh, Moldvay Cook, those were really just AD&D, but only a few levels, right? Whereas um, Beckme really was meant to be presented for new players. So, you know, I feel like that's that's part of that that realization of, of watching his his kids and the younger younger players in his in his gaming groups try to start to to play the game and then to DM and yeah, they need help. Yeah. But also I think from his wargaming uh, roots and all that, I think he also knew that a lot of the adults would need help too. Definitely. So. <laughs> Um, anyway, so we can move on from there. Uh, but lest anybody be uh, confused, there is a fun little uh, hilarious comic at the bottom of page 111 that is a, a, a wizard and a thief and a tavern master or some fighter or something and a, and a, I don't know, monk or cleric or something. Anyway, they're sitting there reading a book. And the caption says, oh, it's a great new fantasy role-playing game. We pretend we're workers and students in an industrialized and and technological society. So uh, papers and paychecks and uh, uh, cubicles and, and, you know, humans and and housewives or whatever, all those (laughs) – those. those those fake um you know oh it's D, but it's as if we're them and we're playing a game about us the, that joke goes all the way back <laughs> oh boy does it I, I actually can't begin to guess how many times i have now seen a variation on this joke mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. and i'd bet that at least uh two times in three the person making the joke uh either hasn't seen this one or has forgotten they've seen this one yeah, uh, right. And that's fine. Yeah, sure. Oh no, I'm I'm not I'm not lambasting anybody. I just think it's it's hilarious um that it keeps it, it it's such a resonating theme, right? That it keeps right. getting redone over and over and over again cuz yeah, I've seen it 50 times. Uh right. I mean, be, be careful you who look into Dungeon Master's guides for the Dungeon Master's guide also looks into you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> That's that's Nietzsche the, the oh, GM. Have fun with that. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I don't recommend that. Not uh, not ever. That's a Nietzsche's and nihilism. It's fun. <laughs> on the plus side, you might get to play Superman. <laughs> yeah. On the downside, your parents uh, have to die. It, <sighs> in fairness, that was going to happen. You're in a role playing game. True. Yes, that's true. Um. So the ongoing campaign is the next major section here. Uh, And uh, this is where you get all of your advice on how to create characters and transfer them or convert them into Boot Hill characters. Boot Hill was the recently at this time released uh, RPG about gunslingers in the Wild West. And also um, Gamma World, which was the RPG about the post-apocalyptic gamma-radiated world. Um, This is actually just the advertisement section in the middle of the book. Yeah, no kidding. So... So there's there's one section that we we skated over that I, oh. I actually really want to go back to. I'm so sorry. Um, I'm I'm going to be that guy. Oh, is but, this the intervention by deities? Uh, no, actually, it's the multiple characters for a single player. Oh, uh, oh, well, you mentioned it, but then we didn't talk about it. 
Okay. Or maybe okay. I read it. <laughs> okay. Because okay. this is a thing that's super important for how I'm running my campaign right now. Okay. Uh, not not the pandemic times online game, mm-hmm. right? But the campaign I've been running since 2012. Um, it's really interesting oh, oh, to see. This is, your, this is your game that is quite a bit like a West Marches game, right? Where the right. Players, yeah. Players come in, it, you don't know who's going to be there every time. Right, it's interesting to see that that uh, you know whether you want to call it a, a West Marches style or a troop style play, mm-hmm. because in a lot of ways this is presaging the thing that Ars Magica is going to do mm-hmm. so famously with like he, here's your your main character and you've got some lower level characters that that you might play uh, at, at the right time and. You know, he's recognizing that it's actually not the most interesting if your main character and your secondary characters are closely tied to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, the innovation of troop style play is going to be to say your secondary characters are actively closely bound to someone else's primary character, right? right. But what Gygax was doing was very West Marches friendly, uh, except that it was more purely dungeon focused. Mm-hmm. So what if West marches, but mainly in the dungeon right. um, where he, he does have this uh, like revolving door of players. and doesn't know he's going to be here, be there on any given night. Um, but he's also, that also means he has people advancing at wildly different rates. <laughs> right. Which honestly was a staple of early D and D. And he also is uh, the, the line about, uh, Money and or valuable items uh, cannot be freely interchanged. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just takes me right to MMOs. Like, mm-hmm. that's called having a twink, folks. Like, <laughs> yeah. W- whatever else that term may be used for, in MMOs, it means a little of a character that you throw a bunch of money at. <laughs> <laughs> and it just. Like it, it's just funny how many things in gaming um, he's seeing some of the seeds of, and people have been solving these problems or deciding they aren't problems that need to be solved. They mm-hmm. document them into being features um, over the years, right? Um, well, and what's amazing is this was you know what seventy nine, yep, eighty one. I can't remember when it was actually released. Uh, I think 78 was the PHB and or 78 was the monster manual. 79 was the PHB and 79, maybe later was the DMG or maybe 80. I can't remember. I think the player's handbook is actually 77. Oh, was, Oh, so I, I, I think we, off. Yeah, I think we found out that it was the monster like manual two was whole years from the player's handbook until there was a damn combat chart. <laughs> right. That's right. That's, that was what we ended our last episode on. That's right. Well, the thing is, like, the, the Monster Manual came first, so there was several months to a year where uh, you just had a bunch of monsters. <laughs> yeah. Hey, no yeah. players. Just monsters. What do you even do? <laughs> um, but yeah, so... <laughs> okay, moving back forward. Yes, um, forward. Onward. Uh, yep. Um, I mean, the next major header is... As you know, Sam, mm-hmm. just going to be my favorite thing in the damn book. Magical research. Yeah. Yes. Uh, this is my deal, folks. Okay. I am so here. <laughs> um, and I think we've, I think we may very well have covered this before, but if we haven't, 
Um, well, go we, listen we to me talk about uh, players' options, spells, and magic, where it's basically the same. Yeah, but you know why we did is because we when we did economies, right? It's related yeah. to economies because of the the, the cost associated yeah. with it. Like it's it, it's a way to spend an extraordinary amount of money, um, but also if you're playing the magic user, like how else are you going to get new spells? There's none of this automatic spell learning mm-hmm. on level up. Mm-hmm. You pansies in my day. <laughs> Well, and also, at this time, it was entirely possible for a player to create a spell from whole cloth. And then the DM had to figure out, okay, for your character to actually create that magical spell in the game, here's what it's going to cost you, here's what you're going to have to do, here's how much research time it's going to take, and all of that stuff, just to create... You know, it. it, it in other words, um, it used to be the case that there weren't that many spells and so if you're sitting at the table and you're a wizard and you think oh man i really want to create a spell that would do this because it would have really solved that problem we had in the last session then you have a conversation with your dm and either you or the dm or both of you sit down and figure out okay what would be the mechanics of this spell how's it going to work how long is it going to last what's it going to take to cast it how much research am i going to have to do to actually create that and that's why these rules are in the book um, you know, all those spells like, uh, that have, that have someone's name attached, right. Those are, those generally, you know, tensor's floating disc, isn't just some random word. Tensor was a PC who created that spell. Right. Um, and so like that, that's part of what this is for. This is actually a staple of the early game because everybody was creating stuff. For sure. So for sure. Yeah, so I understand why you love this section. <laughs> I, absolutely. I do. I'm I'm very into that experience of well uh, let's not beat around the bush. Mm-hmm. This is how you get some more Ars Magica mm-hmm. in your D and D, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. somebody can't get Ars Magica <laughs> in their actual game. Uh, well, I mean, some of the ideas had to come from somewhere, <laughs> uh, yeah. but but also. Uh, if you're having trouble scheduling Ars Magica, like me, uh, then yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, anyway, anything else you want to say about uh, magic research? <laughs> no, I'm good. Um, um, I mean, I do like the the fabrication of magic items. Yeah. I like that it's here. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about before the fact that there isn't actually a good crafting system for tabletop. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. Right. Um, but uh, it isn't here either because some percentile rolls and some money in the vending machine mm-hmm. just right. isn't it. And going on a quest to make a potion is sure the hell not it. I don't know. It's tough. I'm going to figure it out one of these days, though. Mark my words. <laughs> Mark my words, Sam Dillon. Okay. I'm marking. All right. Marking it right now. In one one thing I do like is the suggested special ingredients for potions. This is the kind of stuff I like. Sure. Because this is where you say, okay, uh, look, to make a filter of persuasiveness, you need harpy's tongues or devil's tongue. Sure. Um, you know, rumor says there's a harpy nest up in that uh, ridge over there, about five miles away. 
And it's possible that you could go get a harpy's tongue if you're careful about it. Um, and so that to me is quest fodder, right? So I like this kind of information. Um, uh, sure. You just get into, well, um, uh, how many layers deep of quest do we need to get for one potion? Well, Are we better off que- questing for a completed version of the potion or the thing that would give us permission to make the potion? Right. Well, so the thing is, like, you do this thing once, right? Yeah. And then later on, what happens is you use this as a guide for when they need to create something to solve the problem they're actually dealing with in the campaign. Now, now we're talking now it's like, well, you can't quest for the completed potion because it doesn't exist. So you have to, you have to go figure out what ingredients you might need and then get somebody to go back a page or two and look at the research. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, and do that. Right. Like that's where there's a synergy here that, the one of the reasons I like it is it's, it's so optional. It might not work in a campaign at all. It might it might be something that can be built around and fit in very well. I mean, it really just depends. But having the, that kind of information, it's the same reason, same thing I said about the gems earlier. I think in the last episode yesterday, right, was about when they talk about you know what gems are used to power what kind of magical effect or what gems have you know a history of being used for you know, or being very valuable or whatever, like those sorts of things are really great for creating lore and creating lore makes a world feel real. So that's the kind of thing I like. That's fair. Um, that's fair. I, I can see that working. And then, but I have to tell you, then there's also, there's this, um, this weird, there's this weird section here. That's basically a recipe. You know, it looks like a recipe for cursed pumpkin pie. Accurate. Yeah. Um, yeah. So an ounce of giant squid sepia, a basilisk, basilisk eye, three cockatrice feathers, a scruple of venom from a Medusa snake, a large peridot powdered, a medium topaz also powdered two drams of holy water and six pumpkin seeds. Yum. Um, Without at least an adder's fork, I'm not sure I can approve this. A blindworm sting would would help it a bit. To each their right? own, my friend. And maybe, maybe <laughs> uh, some drummers drumming. Just yes. toss those guys in. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the five golden rings. Harvest the pumpkin in the dark of the moon. Sure. Dry the seeds over yes. a slow fire of sandal. Yeah. Good gracious. This is like, oh, you're a hag? Okay, here's what you put in your cauldron. <laughs> Yeah, this is fine. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it's the kind of thing where, see, this is why I say this book isn't really instructive. It's not meant (laughs) to be an instructive text. Because I I hope, I mean, look, some people find this interesting, right? This kind of recipe style, let me create this item. But the majority of players are going to be not okay with that being the, the focus of what they're doing right Um, yeah but here it is in the middle of this book like as an example of something that could be done in the game or for a campaign and during prep or whatever um it just it's you know that it's sort of the epitome of this book right like that just that summarizes everything about this book it is a mishmash grab bag of advice and rules and tables and examples 
and none of it really tells you how to play. You just mix it up and put it in a soup and throw in <laughs> six pumpkin seeds. Well, and, uh, <laughs> so, so what's funny about this to me is that like the list of ingredients is, is one thing, but once you get into the process, it makes me realize, Oh, right. Like I've totally just done this in a LARP that I ran. Right. <laughs> so, right. So in, in wildland South, um, you had, uh, like, crafting formulas for all the stuff you might want to craft and the economy of that game is a whole other story. But um, what I don't know that players ever like worked out is that the crafting formula had like, you could just go to a juncture and you pay your, your money and maybe you defray costs with some uh, component tags uh, Mm -hmm. and you get your stuff. You get the produced stuff that you can use in the course of play. Right. But the the crafting formula also had this whole process on it, which you could do. And if you did it there in front of the marshal, you'd get a bunch of extra stuff for free. I don't know that anybody ever found that out because <laughs> it was all this rigmarole they didn't want to do. <laughs> but yeah. um, that was that was really inspiring to me, and so that was um, like it was a way to pack in world lore. So mm-hmm. if you can really drill down into that, into both the um, ingredients and the process to say something about the world, which is what you're talking about with mm-hmm. you know, the harpies and coming back to it later, now you're getting somewhere in my book, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's hard for me to look at um, that list of ingredients and see what it's trying to say about world lore. Like those are creatures that exist is not an interesting statement to me anymore. I've been playing D and D since 1993. I know those creatures exist. Like you've got to go a little farther. Uh, If it were a scale from this named basilisk, now we're somewhere for Mm -hmm. me. Right. And uh, you know, we've spent way more time on this than it deserves, but that's, well, I mean, that's me thinking about uh, this at length. But that's, but that's, I mean, well, look, let's be honest. That's what these episodes are about. I mean, we, we've actually covered the, the first edition DMG in quite extensive amounts in other episodes. But, you know, I, I think, I think it's really instructive to talk about this as, you know, I kind of feel like I, again, I'm downgrading it, you know, as this sort of mishmash. Let me throw in a, a, a tip here and a trick there and a table here and some advice over there. And, uh, and here you go. But the fact of the matter is that, um, this is exactly what happens is you and I look at this and go, ah, yeah, the harpy exists. So that's not interesting. However, yeah. Uh, like you said, that named basilisk. Okay. That's the one I have to get its eye. Okay. They already took its left eye because, uh, they tried this recipe the first time, but it fizzled. And now I got to go back and get its right eye. (laughs) That guy's going to be so mad. Uh, yeah, I mean, so like, what do I do? Keep it as a pet afterwards? Cause now it has no eyes. I don't know. You know, um, I'm joking, but you get my idea though, right? Like the, that's exactly what happens to build lore. And the thing is, he doesn't say it in here. He doesn't say, you know, you're going to use these tables to build lore. He just says, oh, here's some fun facts, <laughs> right? Oh, and here's a way that you might make a potion, uh, recipe, 
Right. And here's how you would do some spell research. And he never quite gets to the point where he says, okay, now those three things, they're going to get boring if that's all you do. So what you do instead is make that part of the lore. Yep. Yep. So anyway, okay, well, we can move on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm confident Um, you can cut that into something that people can listen to. Oh yeah, I'm I'm sure I'll do something. Mostly mostly cut my parts. It'll be fine. No. I mean, you know, the thing is like it's it really is true. Like this this book is such a grab bag that you end up, you know, you end up looking at certain pieces and you know, I, I, I if I asked 10 people who who had the first edition DMG and read it and I asked them what the most important passage or what the what the passage they remember the best or the one that they read the most, other than the attack tables, right? The attack matrices, not count. Yep. But other than that, what's the most important part? I would get 10 different answers. For sure. For sure. So, you know, that's a a, a feature and a bug of this book, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, yeah, we're, gonna, we're about to go through a real grab bag of different topics again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Non-standard magic items, use of magic items, push and miscibility table. I, I genuinely mm-hmm. did not expect this to show up in in fifth ed, but man, that nostalgia <laughs> vote, that nostalgia vote has yeah. has power. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yes, it does. And I, we certainly didn't play with it in second ed, even though it was there in the book, because I just couldn't imagine. Um, that being fun for my players. Like that wasn't mm-hmm. where we were at the time. Uh, now I would say I definitely have some players who would love it and some players who would not speak to me for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the thing about the thing about this in first edition was, you know, you, you'd have to have your character taste the potion yep. to figure out what it was. And then you're really only making a guess, Right. And then, so if you're in a pinch and you're, you're going to die anyway, so you might as well drink those potions. Well, we got to know what effect they have. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so that's, that's why this is such an integral part is such a necessary part. Um, fifth edition doesn't really work the same way. So uh, yeah, it's kind of weird to see it in fifth edition, but you know, I mean, whatever. Yeah. Like you said, the nostalgia vote is uh, is is very strong. And then things just get real weird the next couple of pages as we get into treasure, and it's just it's tables on tables and tables. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm I'm confident I can make that sound interesting in a podcast for sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't think it's necessary to try, so <laughs> I'm okay with that. Um, you know, but it's your typical, like, you know, then there's the explanations and descriptions of typical magic items, right? Yep. Uh, tells you the difference between clairaudience and clairvoyance, diminution, delusion, water breathing, right? Blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, you know, this is this is stuff that was necessary. I mean, I mean because, you know. There, like an, an enormous chapter of magic items in the DMG, is a time honored tradition, and I, I support right. it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just uh, all of this stuff has already been adapted into your second edition game, your third edition game, your fourth edition game, and your fifth edition game. That's just the work. Um, in fourth ed, it was stored in the player's handbook. That was weird. Yes, and then there were three other books that were player facing. Yeah, that had. Magic item. For sure. 
I mean, there were other, there were lots of other books that had magic items, but there were three specific player facing books of magic items that were also produced. But, but we should do artifacts because the format of this is so weird. Oh, oh yeah. The two times one. Yeah. Yeah. So, so folks, the, the thing that's weird here that I, I kind of love is, um, that there are blanks in the book where the game seems to expect you to write in what the traits of the item are. Mm-hmm. So if you've written in the book, maybe you maybe in your next campaign you come back and erase it. Or maybe you don't, and that's just a legacy item now for all of your future mm-hmm. campaigns. Like as as an approach to legacy content, that's actually kind mm-hmm. of beautiful. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it's telling you to write in the book and like I don't know about you, but I was not the person who would do that. No, I'm I, still I not. I do. You know what? I am, and you know why? Because a, a book collector actually told me that. Um, I mean, this probably doesn't apply to RPGs, but a, a, a collectible book that has notes in the margins and comments in the margins that someone has ha- lovingly written. You know, not like you know. Kilroy was here, but like actual comments about the topic of the book, whatever it is, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, those types of books for a collector are actually worth a lot of money. That's a fair point. Because you, you get, you get the, you get the thought pattern of that person as well. It's almost like an annotated copy, except it's not annotated by the author. It's annotated by the reader, which is fascinating from a historic perspective. I mean, I was stopping at getting uh, a bunch of my stuff signed. Right, yeah. so so I'd get yeah. someone who created it, typically Dan, right. uh, to mm-hmm. to sign the, the, <laughs> yeah. the you know um, front papers. But right. that's a great idea. Uh, now just right. start printing books with space for marginalia, because right, right. like right. of course I want to be a monk who uh, draws small animals doing lewd things in the margins. <laughs> Obviously, people, right. come on, yes, look at yes, me. Of course, yeah, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I do. No, it's, it, it, you make a really good point, yeah. right? I, I yeah. But I, I was one of those people, though. I have pristine books, right? <laughs> Even the ones I'm reading, I'm trying not to bend the spine too much. For and sure. Yada yada yada. For sure. And then when that, when he told me that, I was like, you know, I never ever thought about it that way. Well, and someday when we're famous, of, dude. Someday when we're right. famous. Well, it kind of shifted my perspective on books, and I started thinking about not about writing in them, but just about keeping it pristine. What's that doing for me? Nothing. Like, I should be using them with abandon, right? Sure. Like, just using them and letting them get scuffed up and opened and fold a page and, you know, not damaged and ripped and stuff, but just like regular use wear is not a bad thing. Right. Um, I used to be real anal when I was younger. Uh, I mean, <laughs> in fairness, uh, I have two different uh, copies of the player's handbook that we had to totally rebind. So I guess I can write whatever I want. In them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, uh, that whole approach to uh, artifacts where like the game doesn't tell you what they do. It instead tells you how many different things they do. And then you go look at the, the frankly quite enormous tables of different mm-hmm. things they might do and go from there. Um, yeah. And you can choose. Yeah. Well, and, or you can, 
or you can roll. And, and pointedly, also, the, the names become much more distant from any implication of effect, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, right. Like the Orb of the Eternal Grand Dragon, uh, aside from a name that makes me wince in Southern, um, mm-hmm. uh, does actually have a definite effect, and then a pile of uh, uh, blanks for effects, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but something like the Ring of Gax, you can't look at that name and know what it does. Right. Um, well, here's, and here's the interesting thing. Look at the rod of seven parts, right? So yep, yep, yep. Uh, we get, we get a little bit of history. We get uh, the little bit of the functions and then the assembly powers and effects and what happens when you get the, and you know, I don't think most people realize that you could choose, right? Yeah. And then there's this really horrific one, this absolutely horrific one, the teeth, of Nalvernar. So yep. <laughs> there's an entry for each tooth. So there's 32 entry. So an, a, a human with heterodont dentition without wisdom teeth has 32 teeth. And then it gives different options for sets and cumulative effects. I mean, that's, that's actually okay. awesome. It's totally it's awesome, awesome, awesome and horrifying. And horrible. Yeah. Totally horrifying. Uh, like, I would really want to also give out the skull of Dalvernar <laughs> right. as a holding device, right? Like, that's actually <laughs> right. cool. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I love set items because I've played a video game ever, and, set, like, set items and set bonuses are cool. They're just hard to do in 5e for yeah. kind of well, obvious I mean, reasons. Look, I... I love the idea. I'm just saying it's absolutely <laughs> it's gross. Yeah. It's teeth, okay. It's just, uh, no, no. Um, anyway, so then there's several pages of, uh, you know, different effects, different side effects, you know, it's all, you know, uh, numbers, numbers and letters so that you're actually rolling on the correct table for the correct item and yada, yada, yada. So I have actually played in a, uh, a Planescape game. Where uh, the hexblade in the party uh, stole and absorbed the sword of Cass. I just, okay. I, I feel that the world needs to know that, that was amazing. <laughs> I bet it was. Uh, that was the same adventure in which we had to uh, steal the jar holding the hand of Vecna. We needed the jar. Oh, jeez. There's just one bad problem. It still has the hand inside. Oh. So. Yes. Uh, <laughs> nuts. <laughs> That was wild. Anyway. <laughs> um, and that actually brings us to the end. Um, well, okay, so not the end, but I pointed out at the end of the last episode that, you know, we were kind of halfway through because we were on page around 80. Um, and really, this book ends at page 168, because on 169 is the first of the appendices. Right. Um, and then there are, you know, 20 or so what 40 how many there's 240 pages so there's uh, 70 pages of yeah, appendices 70 yeah. pages of appendix yeah of appendices uh so but the thing is that it's very like you know the f- appendix a is a random dungeon generator so it gives you some geomorphs and then a crap ton of tables to roll on um uh, indices and, you know, uh i mean appendix n is famous Right. Mm-hmm, right. 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 Uh, such that but the wait, words wait, appendix I, N get used right. to mean what happens here. Right. Right. Uh, appendix A, 
I mean, when I was young, I spent hours just rolling up grand dungeons. Yep. Um, I think my wife did too. Um, I think this mm-hmm. is something she uh, enjoyed doing was rolling up random dungeons. Yeah. And uh, like, I can see enjoying that, uh, especially if you built up the rules a little bit more to mm-hmm. like lean into a, like you have to play against a, a deck of, of mm-hmm. monsters mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. are going to like, give you trouble. But I'm a huge yeah. fan of um, deck-driven AIs for monsters. Yeah. You know, the thing is that the reason I liked it is because um, it's sort of like, um, you know that thing where if you have a decision to make and there's a, you could do one of two things and you and you feel like they're both equal and you don't really, you know, you're just like, I, I don't know either one. I don't know which one to choose. And so somebody says flip a coin, right? And you flip a coin. It's not that the coin is going to tell you which one to do. It's that you're going to realize when it tells you what the whatever it comes up as, if you wanted to actually do that one or not, right? And so that's kind of what these tables are. And and creating those smallish random dungeons helped me learn what aspects of dungeons I like and don't like, what aspects are interesting and what aspects get boring after a little bit. And, you know, that sort of thing. Nice. Um, so it was more of a sort of design exercise for me, only because it was a formative time for me. Yeah, so. no, that's an awesome point, though. Yeah. Um, like forcing you to think about your emotional reaction to the random result and to mm-hmm. help you figure out your actual tastes. That's a super good point. Um, and that also applies to the random wilderness terrain details. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, you know, and I mean, so. the rest of this book was not short on tables, but the table is about to get real. <laughs> it is, it is a lot. Um, we're going to get into like random encounter tables, a bunch of them. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Like it's the um, same kind of stuff that's going to be appendices in every future DMG. So I don't see why this should be left out of the act. Uh, iconic picture of a satyr on page one eighty seven. Seven Brandis, describe artwork. A great, <laughs> a great, a great, one of the iconic images yep. from first edition is 193. The a Miracle, the Chaotic by David A. Trampier is uh, the DCC RPG guys, Goodman Games. They put out a, a module called A Miracle Was Framed. Amazing. And it's an, it's an, ama- it's an homage to this cover this art the cover art cover art for that product is is uh, an homage to this one um dcc rpg actually has a lot of homages to uh ad and art well sure um yeah, yeah yeah it was so formative for so much of their user right. base yeah yeah mm-hmm. yep um and then so we're i'm on appendix d random generation of creatures from the lower planes and then Appendix E, recapitulation of monsters alphabetically with XP values. <laughs> God. Yeah. Because the thing is that the monster manual did not have XP values, for those of you that don't know this. Oh, I didn't know that. You had to, oh. Yeah, you had to go to a table in the DMG to calculate based on the hit dice of the creature oh. and the special abilities of it. What an actual war crime. Yeah, yeah. So having this table in the back of the DMG with actual experience points is uh, is a winner. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is a bunch of pages of monsters. 
Uh, I'm looking at Appendix F, gambling, and feeling very attacked right now. Oh, I'm not there yet. Oh, it's okay. Oh, look at that. Wow. Yeah. Huh? Uh, um. <laughs> and the reason I say I'm feeling attacked is that we absolutely uh, did our own variation on this in Season of Adari. Because yeah. like, do you actually have a swashbuckling game without gambling? I put to you that you might not. And uh, um, Sean certainly thought you did not, in fact, have a uh, swashbuckling game without some gambling going on. Well, I, I submit you should not have a swashbuckling game without gambling. Um, I'm shocked. Shocked to find gambling going on. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then Appendix G is just one table of traps, and then it moves quickly onto Appendix Appendix H. How is that enough information? Come on. I don't know. <laughs> Everything else you go into detail, but traps. Right. You're just gonna skate on me, huh? Sure. Yeah. Gary. <laughs> I mean that should it's probably just a republication or reprint of the tables in the appendix A. Fair. So, um and then um furnishings tables, dungeon dressing. Which actually is is one another one of those with that you know, that formative, you know, it has an unexplained sounds and weird noises table. Yep. 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 It has an odors table. It has a magic users furnishings, uh, miscellaneous utensils and personal items. I mean, I mean, these things can be used for like, you know, what's in a room, what's in its pockets. Yeah. You know? Well, we can't say enough good about some of these for just, this is the first time a lot of people saw some of these words. Uh, oh, I would yeah. bet that north of fifty percent of all readers had not seen the word alembic before they saw it in the magic user furnishings yeah. section. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh yeah. No. Totally. Um, oh yeah. There's a ton in here. I mean, look, oubliette. I mean, once you get into herbs, spices, and medicinal vegetables, like it shifted from being a DMG to being a commonplace book, and that's amazing. <laughs> that is bananas, <laughs> but that is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Describing magical substances, that is literally just a vocabulary section. Yeah. That's kind of incredible. but Right, but remember, though, you couldn't just Google, and you didn't have a phone in your pocket that would tell you. You're losing me here. I, have, 20- I don't understand. Yeah, I know, what, right? Like, where did you keep Wikipedia? Uh, this was it. Uh, oh, this, this, is this is your Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, and then we get to Appendix N, which you mentioned before. I mean, you could probably just load up Encyclopedia Britannica on the CD-ROM, though, right? Yeah, back then, <laughs> if you got in your time machine first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so so sorry, I interrupted you a bunch there. Like no no no, I was just saying. And then we get to Appendix N, yep. which you mentioned before, um, regarding uh, the list of uh, inspirational readings, um, and then it's quickly followed by an encumbrance table, which we will not talk about, and then Appendix <laughs> P, creating a party on the spur of the moment, um, and it literally lets you you know roll up basically what amounts to pregens for any adventure that you want to run. That's great. That's amazing. Um, it's a, it's, you know, two and a half pages. I, I'm going to put forth the opinion that the five E DMG not having this is uh, just a mistake. Like not necessarily this, this approach. I'm not saying percentile roles, but um, character sheets or at least stat summaries for uh, maybe five to six pregen characters. 
you should actually have that. That's that's a really good idea. Well, that's like the um, you know one of the most helpful sections I I maintain one of the most helpful sections of any of the fifth edition books is in the back of the monster manual where they have the little NPC section. Oh yeah. And they have stat blocks for generic NPCs. Oh yeah. Those are, and then in the back of uh, Volos, there are some as well. And then I think Mort- Morty's, Morton Kamen's has it as well. Yep. Like there's just a few. Um, and the, and each subsequent book that they produce has a different sort of variation of CR numbers yep. for those creatures. But I mean, it's fantastic. That's exactly what I need when I'm creating on the fly. For sure, for sure. Um, and so that that kind of goes along with this, right? Like yep. Th- that's kind of what this is. Right. So. This at least is sort of uh, player adjacent, even mm, more than right. than those are. But sure. uh, th- oh, yeah. those yeah. those uh, NPC sections you're talking about, like I run a largely urban game. I use those sections probably eight to nine times more than the whole rest of the monster manuals put yep. together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My, my games end up being very social. So yeah. it's often, yeah. um, you know, uh, who are they talking to? And that person is usually a humanoid. And um, so there you go. I need those stat blocks. <laughs> so the one last really good laugh I get out of this book uh, is the glossary mm-hmm. where um, I, I'm, I'm going to assume that, Gary wasn't conscious of himself doing this, but instead uh, his editor, um, who's the editor on this? Mike Carr wrote the forward. So he- okay, it, it, he's listed as rules editor, so we'll assume it's Mike Carr. I, I'm going to assume that uh, Mike Carr or someone who is, for these purposes, Mike Carr, um, recognized that Gary's writing style involved a lot of uh, language and kind of markup abbreviations that were not going to be common knowledge to his target audience. So the glossary explains yeah. what CF means. The glossary <laughs> explains what QED means. Yep. Mm-hmm. The, the glossary, glossary explains nota bene. Like, right. Except here's the thing, though. It doesn't really explain it. It just tells you the translation. Sure, yes. <laughs> it doesn't say nota bene. It says note well. Yeah. So it doesn't actually give you, and it doesn't give you a, a an idea of what it, why it's, why is, why does QED means which was to be demonstrated? Like it doesn't tell you that. Well, and so you have to go farther if you want to. Know. And its definition for quo vadis is especially opaque. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Oh man. Whew. Yeah. But funny though. I mean, but it's true that w- this was enough at the time right. for a lot of people. Right. And you need to explain what psionics is. Like, of course you did. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I, I can't remember <laughs> yeah. not knowing that now, but obviously at some point I didn't know right. that. Yeah. Anyway. Yep. That yep. that brings us to the functional end of this book, aside from some ads and indices and more ads. And uh, also there's some more tables, because why would there not be another set of tables after the last ad in the book? Sure. Yeah. Um, this is your. This is just the same tables from the from the non-player character uh, section, the hiring section, um, and it, it's just the reprint. So you've got them right at hand. So that brings us to the end of the first edition DMG. So 
you know, I feel like we took a much, uh, much lighter analysis of it uh, with this couple of episodes than we have in the past, because in the past we've had a specific topic we've wanted to cover uh, XP and uh, AC and two hit and uh, ec- economics, um, all of those series of episodes the dmg from first edition was heavily heavily discussed um so if there's something in here that that we didn't say and you're uh hitting your steering wheel because you're driving while you're listening to this and we didn't mention something try to go back and look at one of those sections or one of those other episodes and we go in much more detail there um do you want to summarize your thoughts about the first edition DMG before we head out? Well, so I've, I've covered a lot of what I want to say as we've gone along. I guess the main thing that I see here is that this is laying the foundation for the conversations we're still having 41 years later about how the game is played what what we say has changed, but what we're talking about in a lot of cases hasn't. Um, we've we've solved problems. We've created new, more refined problems. Uh, we've reverted to these problems in some in some cases. I I think I might hold this up as the most foundational text that has ever been written about the topic of Dungeons and Dragons. Period. Right. Because there's so much more here than in any text that came before it about how to run the game and what the game should look and feel like, right? Uh, because as you said, there wasn't anything like this for OD&D before this. And I, I do still think that like getting through this book and extracting meaning from it uh, is consciously or not an initiatory experience it is hard it's not tr- it's not friendly at all it is so badly organized that um what you're going to do is open to any section see something you've never seen before and then skim around and see some other stuff you've never seen before and that is intended to be absorbed in some way but at the same time books released within the past you know, five years are in many cases just as dense and impossible to absorb. I'm looking at you, game name obscured by uh, static in the in the recording. <laughs> you know what you did. Well, I, I would uh, posit that even the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide is difficult to read and doesn't actually teach you as much about playing the game as seasoned veteran DMs think it does. I think that's a fair cop. And I think that part of the reason why there's the, you know, we, we often say, Oh, we know nobody reads it, you know, well, guess what? There's a reason why it's a giant textbook. Yeah. And it's meant as a reference, but you know, textbooks only work as a reference when you have knowledge already, and so you only need to reference that knowledge. Right. So you have to read it at least once. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the question that ultimately we're going to be left with throughout this entire 12 days of Edition Wars is, what would it look like for a Dungeon Master's reference to really invite you in? How would you do that in text? That's the unsolved problem. Yeah. Um, 
there are very smart people in both the mainstream tabletop gaming and indie gaming space who have dedicated vast amounts of time to helping to bring people into the conversation of games. And if you weren't there having that conversation with them in person, it's no better than this book right here. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I feel super bad about telling them that in the medium of this podcast, but it's the honest truth. Um, There are assumed definitions of words, uh, assumed connections between ideas that have no way to make it onto the page. It's Mm -hmm. an unsolved Mm -hmm. problem, not to say unaddressed, but it's not solved in the now 46 years since this hobby got off the ground. Um, I mean, something like um, Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering. Robin D. Laws is an excellent, excellent writer. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been praising his work in Twitter lately in specific. But, you know, he sets out to explain something super narrow. And I don't know that it, it is enough better of a text to to capture all the things that this book is trying to do. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. I I don't know. Maybe that's, it's unfair and I should go back to uh, reread my copy, but I I don't know if it's unfair. I I feel like, you know, the issue is that there's a reason I call it a textbook, right? And, and look, honestly, the fifth edition player's handbook is a textbook as well. And so is the monster manual, although the monster manual is much more like a Wikipedia, uh, type of textbook rather than a whole body of knowledge. And so the thing is, okay, as a college professor, here, here's the thing. I don't just hand my students a textbook and say, okay, read this. Now watch a couple of videos. Okay, now go do it, right? I have to lead them through, teach them how to read the text in the first place, right? Here's how to organize the information in your brain. Here's how to catch the clues in the text that tell you this item is important to pay attention to. Uh, here's here's how to know when you should stop and summarize, right? Um, and then now that you've done all that, okay, now rewrite that whole amount of information again in your own words in a manner that you can understand it that still stays true to what that item is. Okay, now work with that material, right? So imagine if we had a dungeon master's guide that said, okay, um, here's what uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to teach you how to play the game. We're going to start with the very basics, and then I'm going to give you lessons that walk you through and then make you do. See, that's the part that's missing is the make you do it part, right? I don't just talk at my students for a semester and then give them one test in the end and make them do it one time and then they're done. They have to practice and generate skills all throughout the semester. So that's what it would take for a a dungeon master's guide to really be a text that is meant to teach a game. And that's not what, I'll say it now, that's not what any of the dungeon master's guides are. They are textbooks, but they are not set up with a person that is there allowing the game to be taught through those textbooks and then forcing or teaching that person how to utilize those skills. That's what would be required. Yeah. 
And so my answer to you is what, what is the DMG that, what would a DMG have to be? It would have to be a starter box, a starter kit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even though the fifth edition starter set is a great starter set and it's a very good adventure and it's really well-written, I'm not sure it does what I'm saying it should do either. So, so, okay. Looking at, looking at this DMG and maybe this is a question we can also be thinking about um, as we go through all these DMGs. Um, Mm -hmm. What is the right experience level of DM to see the, the best improvement in ability from this book? If you're already a very good GM, does this help you step across into some presumably quite rare state of a great GM? Uh, does this help you get from, well, I've run a few games, I know uh, what all these uh, clicky math rocks do, but uh, let's deepen this into, okay, now I know my, I really know my way around and I can start improvising with confidence. Like, Who's who? What is what is the precise target user of any particular DMG, and what does it give them? Because if this isn't targeting the the day one newbie, who is it targeting? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I and I and so, but that that actually begs the question though. So, who is the target? Right, like that's what you're asking. Yeah. Who is the target? Then? Yeah, and and and. and so, so the the answer is not new people. <laughs> yeah. Right. So then that means that the, the analysis that I just gave you two minutes ago is a false one, because I was giving that analysis from the standpoint of thinking the book is meant to be an instructional instructional manual for new DMs, and it's not. Right. So if it's not, then there's a different metric we need to be measuring the DMG by. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the answers to this stuff. Um, I think that I think that in Gygax's mind, maybe he was trying to talk to mainly people who had been running um, OD&D for, let's call it two or three years of fairly regular sessions. Because uh, he's not saying you have to have like been on the bus with him since... 74, God help you, 72, uh, when he started writing it, right? Uh, or, or before that, when uh, you know, Chainmail first came out, or before that, when there wasn't even that much for fantasy gaming. Um, anyway, uh, I, I don't have a satisfactory answer, but mm-hmm. um, I don't I'm, I'm I interested don't... in the question of like who the target of each DMG is, if it's mm-hmm. consistent. And like it, it certainly makes sense to me as a writer that he would have a hard time putting himself back in the shoes of someone who hadn't done this before. I am very conscious uh, as a blogger that I find it very difficult to speak to someone who doesn't have any experience with the game at all, right? Um, I, I, and frankly, I, I don't try all that hard anymore. Because I, yeah, and I, well, that's what I was going to say about him. I don't think he was trying that either. Yeah. I think the tone sometimes comes off like that, but that's not why his tone comes off like that. I think his tone sometimes comes off like that because he's trying to write in a very erudite, scholarly manner. Yeah. 
And that's how that comes off. It comes off as paternalistic a lot of times. And that that feels like, oh, you're being paternalistic because you're trying to teach me something. But that's not really what his, that's not, it wasn't, I'm going to teach a new person something. It was, you know what I'm saying? So I don't think that, I think, I think he was aware that he, or maybe I, 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 let me take that back. I retract that. I'm not sure he was aware that he did not do well speaking to new, because the thing is that he was the, mostly the only person speaking to players for a long time. Yeah. Right. As he was writing this specifically. So yeah. Anyway, well, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I don't know the answer either. So now we've gone way off on a tangent. So that's okay. Cause I think, I think that I think maybe our listeners will find the question interesting too, because um, I, th- I think I agree with you. I think the target audience for this book was uh, a group of people that already have experience with the game and who have never run it, but have experience playing the game or, and are older adults or people who want to learn uh, people who have already had experience and just want to learn how to do it like he does it, right? They already run their own games and they want to get insight into his mind. And so neither of those categories really is a new player category. Yeah. Well, on that note, I think we shall end this thing. So Sam, where can our dear listeners, our dear and very patient listeners, find you online? You can find me on rpgmusings.com, or you can find me on twitter.com slash dmsamuel. And how about you? You can find me on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard. Uh, my personal blog is brendastoddard.com. I also write for tribality.com, and my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. Excellent. All right. Well, once again, we hope you are enjoying this series and stay tuned tomorrow for day three of the 12 Days of Edition Wars Christmas special. And uh, we're going to talk about the second edition Dungeon Master's Guide.